Hey guys, Ian here with another episode of Unleash and Unhinged, the podcast where we talk about all things dog. Dog training, dog behaviour, dog health, literally anything you can think about when it comes to dogs, we'll talk about on here. We hope you enjoy the episode. everybody and welcome back to Unleashed and Unhinged, another episode here today. And we have Moira from Separation Anxiety Dog. Welcome to the show, Moira. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I can't wait for this one. It's uh, one I've been looking forward to for a little while now. Um, I'd love to just start off, if it's okay, just introducing, if you don't mind introducing yourself to the audience, uh, a little bit about who you are, what you do. And uh, yeah, let's get to know you a bit. Mm, of course. And yeah, I'm super excited that to be here as well. I was super happy when you invited me to come. Um, well, as you mentioned already, my name is Moira. My last name is Hechelleitner. That's why that's why Ian <laughs> decided not to say it. <laughs> well, we can't say it, so it's fine. Uh, you will find in separation side dog. That's easier and <laughs> easier to remember. Um, I'm Chilean, but I live in the U.S. I've been living here for the last six years, I believe, or five years. Um, and I'm a veterinarian, a certified separation anxiety trainer. And I've been working exclusively with separation anxiety cases since 2017. So a lot of cases, a lot of separation anxiety dogs, unfortunately, but at the same time, um, a lot to learn from them. And that's what I do online. So I do get to help uh, people from all over the world, different time zones as we are right now, and uh, also in Spanish and in English. So quite a few audience. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only just dawned on me that, of course, you get to actually help people with separation anxiety with two, two languages. Um, <laughs> that's huge. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is it was quite a, a journey so um, a little bit of a personal note when when I became a certified separation anxiety trainer before that I used to work um, in behavior as well but general behavior not only separation anxiety and I have been I have been doing that for a while before I jumped into separation anxiety I had a business in Chile uh, back then but then when I decided to specialize at kind of around the same time I moved to the U.S. So not only I started with a new subject, but also most of my clients were now English speakers. So it took quite a while to, you know, not feel that much of an imposter and not so embarrassed to speak because a lot of the words I didn't know because they were in English. And yeah. you know, it takes a while, but um, you get there, you get there and it's, it's now sometimes it's hard for me to speak in Spanish <laughs> because there's so many terms that I'm used to use in English that when I need to use them in Spanish, I start translating and I get all cogged up. <laughs> like, of course. So did when it came to, and this is just now out of my own personal curiosity, but like when you were studying it, did you study it in English? I did study the separational side part of things. I did study it in English. Um, Behavior in general, before that, I did in Spanish. Yeah. So it was, that was a nice transition because it allowed me to learn a little bit more about the terminology. And I had been traveling 
quite a lot to the U.S. prior to that. So a lot of my learning was happening in English, which is which really helped. But veterinary um, school, that was in Spanish. So still until this time, till, until now, sometimes when I have to explain things in English, medical things, I, I feel like I sound like a caveman. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I just don't know the terminology. <laughs> well, having been to one of your workshops and listened to you speak in person, I can tell you that you don't sound like a caveman. <laughs> and um, I, felt, I felt like a bit of a Neanderthal in the audience going, I didn't know this. <laughs> so <laughs> this is great. Oh, no. <laughs> it's the wonders of doing something every day you know like when you do your same the same subject every day you get to see a lot of things repeating and it just it it's not about like being smart of not really it's about just the repetition and the patterns it just becomes so easy to talk about it you know so that's that's the beauty of working with specialties in different aspects of, of dog behavior yeah absolutely and you know we can't expect anybody we can't expect anybody to just know. I think, uh, you know, there's so many people out there um, struggling and it's quite normal not to know, isn't it, at the end of the day? I mean, definitely. We're, we're constantly learning, right? And um, dogs and their guardians are our best teachers. Uh, and, and not only the, the content and the, you know, knowledge we can acquire from different sources, but also seeing them and working with them and, and seeing patterns to repeat and seeing trends to repeat it really helps us understand better what we're doing and I mean personally I really like to I work with my clients and who are regular clients I I work very close to them very tight like daily and sometimes we have to figure it out together it's like I don't know what what's happening let's try this I don't really know like I don't know I don't have the answer to this question let's try let's try this let's see how it works and if it works great, then I can apply it to other clients as well. And that's one of the beauties of separation anxiety training that one of the things um, I learned to do back in the day, and now I, I continue doing it, is to keep a data tracking, we call it. Or basically, we just track all the information, which is not very common to do in other areas of behavior, but that I have seen now more and more people sort of using this idea and, and carrying it in other aspects as well. And it's so helpful because you can track every single aspect of the dog's life from feeding to experiences that the dog has in a day, amount of exercise, the training you're doing, different things that could have happened to them during that, you know, grooming, vet appointment, whatever, health, medications. And if you track all of that, it's just so much easier to start applying different changes either in the environment or in your training and really seeing if there is an impact of what you're doing. So you get to sort of experiment in a safe frame and, and get answers working as, you know, shoulder by shoulder with your clients. So it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's, it's one of separations, one of those areas as well, because we're not present. So, so many aspects of dog training, like the dog's behavior is something that is happening right in front of the person and probably impacting that person quite heavily whereas with separation because we're not present that data tracking must be so important because well, how else do you know like <laughs> you're not there exactly and there are two two aspects of not being there so on on one hand when you are still not working on it so when 
when the person is leaving the dog alone, um, you know, before starting a training plan or even after during um, the training plan when you're leaving, but in a, in a supervised fashion, um, it's sometimes it's hard to feel the emergency that this issue has because you're not there to witness this, as you were mentioning. So it's not like when you see your dog biting someone. Um, so when you when your dog is biting someone, it's not only uh, a danger for others, for third parties, which makes it an emergency, but you're also seeing it. You're part of the problem in a way. When you're leaving your dog alone, if there is no consequences that affect your life, like such as, you know, destruction or neighbors complaining, it might sort of slip away and, and, and you might think that it's not an emergency and kind of like let it, let it slide and see if it's right better. Now. Exactly. Uh, and, it, and it's not affecting third parties, so it's not an emergency anymore. So it's, it, that part can be quite hard because some people might not have it within their list of priorities. So just other, you know, issues like aggression and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely. Especially if the person's seeing that dog live an otherwise happy and healthy life, they might just go, oh, look, you know, yeah, they struggle when they're alone. But, you know, other than that, they're fine. And so just push it under the rug, move on with their day. It's, I mean, I've done it in the past with previous dogs. I know I have. It's just. It didn't quite hit home for me back then how important it was. Exactly. And also, I, I know this happened to me. It felt uncomfortable to actually face it as a professional because I didn't know what to do. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I became uh, a specialist in, specialist in this area is because I always felt like I didn't really have the answer to those questions. Uh, and I was kind of throwing the, the spaghetti to the wall and, and see what, what, which one would stick, right? So I kept like giving my clients all this huge list of things that they could try. And at the same time, I was usually training their dog for other things. And the feedback at the end would be like, oh, yeah, my dog is so much better in all of the other aspects, except for this one that is the one I actually called you for <laughs> in a nice way. They weren't mad at me, but it, 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 it wouldn't really work for that purpose. Yep. So I always felt uncomfortable. And if I could, I guess, unconsciously sort of like just let it slide, uh, I, I think I did. I did many times. I, I had to, you know, take <laughs> uh, <laughs> responsibility for those cases, uh, definitely. So, yeah, it is definitely hard to, to change that mindset and realize that it's still an emergency, although your dog might be just suffering in silence and you, it doesn't look very, very bad. And another thing I wanted to mention when we were talking about a long time is that or or not being there is that another part of this training is that we as trainers aren't there in the house. That's why I get away with doing this online, not just because I like to, but also because it actually it's actually much more beneficial mm. because you aren't disrupting the, the natural setup of the person departing the house. If I was there in the house with them leaving, it just wouldn't be what naturally happens when you leave your house, right? Um, so on one hand, that's, that makes it much more organic if I'm just watching from, from a camera. And on the other side, on the other hand, if I am watching through a camera, I can really observe the body language of the dog in a very thorough way, which allows me to really understand what's happening. Whether if I was there, if I was moving in and out, 
but just waiting outside the door with, without really watching the dog, I wouldn't really able to really be able to tell what's happening. And that's still a little bit of a there is a little bit of resistance. It has gotten much better after COVID, actually, but there's still some resistance. Sometimes people want help in person. And I get those contacts where they say, well, but I just really want you to come in my house. I don't I don't feel comfortable with online. And I feel like this 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 um, instances like like today, for example, are a very, very, very nice uh, uh, opportunity to to explain that and for people to learn that it is actually what we want to do. It's not an excuse to do it online. It's actually in this particular case, it's very, very helpful. Absolutely. Like we offer as a company, uh, we offer a range of services and I've got different trainers for that are better at different things. And we've got a, a separation anxiety trainer. And so even if I'm working with this family on in person, what I'm starting to do, and it's a very recent thing, and so probably actually since seeing you uh, a few weeks back, and that's just, again, just these clogs kicking in my brain as I work this out. But if they bring up separation anxiety, it's far more, I'm far more comfortable stepping away from that area of training, with, even if I am in the house and working with them, and asking my team member, one, because she's actually much better at it than me. Um, <laughs> but, um, but two, because she works remotely with that topic, and it is a far more effective way of addressing that particular area of dog training. Because it, for exactly the reasons you just outlined there, like me being in the home and leaving the house and me monitoring the dog is completely artificial setup it doesn't actually give us a true picture we don't get an actual true reading of what's going on so yeah even if i am working with somebody one-on-one -on -one in person when it comes to separation i'll stay i'll take a step back and i would i would try to actually have them stop seeing me in person but yeah you're so right and um and and that's something great that you just mentioned that you know aside from from the fact that it is better to not be there right what we were saying before it is so great to have the opportunity to have different team members to approach different subjects because we can be good at everything. I know I am not. <laughs> and no, I'm amazing. No. It's <laughs> 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 no. like we, we sometimes have our like traits that we're great at, and some things we really suck at. Like we're very bad at. So I hope I can say that. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> oh so, yeah, this is, this is not an art. This is this. You can you can go to town. Just say say whatever. Okay, you want. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I podcast. I'm, I'm glad. Thank you. <laughs> I can't blame it to English being my second language. I always. It's not about work. So yeah, I think that um, it's so um, important to have teamwork set in place, and I try to do that a lot as well. So I don't. I don't do anything else but separation anxiety. And in many cases, of course, dogs will have different struggles, the same as humans. It's not like they're a problem dog. They just, you know, we have different struggles in our lives and they will have different struggles in their lives as well. So it is a myth, although there are many, there are many cases where they are great at everything except having separation anxiety. There are many cases where it's just normal dog with normal struggles in different aspects of their lives. And in those cases, I, I, I don't do the other part of the training. I focus on working on my side of things and I usually seek help with other friends or colleagues 
acquaintances, or if they are already working with someone, we try, I try to, you know, uh, reach out and get in touch so we can all like create a beautiful circle of people who do what they do best yeah. and help each other so we can really optimize results. Ultimately, that's what we want, right? To, to help the dog and the family. So a hundred percent, like we, we normalize it now with uh, health professionals, like humans, right? Like I'm not going to go and sit down and talk to my physiotherapist about my, you know, my therapy needs. That's just not appropriate. And yeah, while my physio might be a wonderful person and sit there and listen to me, probably not going to be able to give me the best advice or at least, like, you know, <laughs> the most appropriate advice. <laughs> so. Yeah. And they don't see it on a daily basis. So they might have an idea, but that's not what they do. So exactly. It's, it's time for us to normalize it in the dog training world as well. And not only in the, uh, you know, human medicine, if you will. Uh, my, my sisters, um, I have twin sisters, not, not, not twin of mine. Like they're, oh, cool. they're twins <laughs> with each other. Uh, they're younger than me. Um, they're, they live in Chile and they're both um, doctors. Uh, human doctors and um when my dad usually asked them for like advice like oh, like daughter i have like something in my eye like what do you think it is they usually reply i don't know go to an ophthalmologist <laughs> because that's not what they do you know so they, they don't know and it's true and it's it, and it's okay we don't have to know everything that's that's the i guess bottom line yeah absolutely and i think the industry our industry is actually inevitably moving that way because it's becoming more and more, I guess, okay not to know everything, but also off the back of that to then go off and specialize in what we have interests in, what we, you know, what we're good at. And you know, while, while I'm on that topic, I'm going to ask a little bit of a question now, like, because you're the expert, <laughs> no pressure. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, in your, in your line of work, what's one of the things, you know, that you might see like people struggling with? when it comes to separation, like, uh, you know, what, what comes up for you? Um, I think the biggest one, and we were talking a little bit about that before we got started is the actual term separation anxiety and understanding if what your dog is suffering from is actually that or something else. Um, it's such a popular term and it became even more popular after the pandemic when a lot of dogs came to our house and then we had to start leaving them and they started showing this signs that looked disturbing or concerning and we don't know what to do. And, and so it's a very easy word to use, it's, yeah. you know, which is fine. But, you know, the problem with it is that it's not always separation anxiety. And the reason why it's important to know if it is or if it's not is that the treatment or the approach is not necessarily going to be the same depending on what it is. And you might be able to address and navigate the situation much more easily if it's not separation anxiety, which doesn't mean that other things aren't important, but you will probably be able to just set up a few things in place and have good results. Whether if it's actually separation anxiety, although you can keep it as simple as possible in terms of you know, not overwhelming yourself with the training you have to do. It's a long-term training and it's going to take a while. And, and, it's, it, and it's, it's, it's emotional consuming. So it is important to know the difference. And there are a, lot, a ton of different things that can be happening. We actually call them separation-related behaviors. You guys don't have to remember that term, but 
um, just so you know, and separation-related behaviors are all the behaviors a dog can do when left alone that are undesirable either for them and or for the humans of that household. And those are the usual things that we don't like, right? Such as barking, howling, um, destroying things in the house, urinating, defecating, scratching the windows, the door, among others. And if you think about those behaviors, they're pretty general behaviors, right? They can happen in all sorts of situations, <laughs> from you walking your dog and your dog barking to, you know, you speaking on the phone and your dog wanting attention <laughs> or, or anything, or your dog, you know, hearing another dog passing by outside your house. So, or, or urinating because your dog is a puppy and doesn't know where to go or can't hold it, you know, or your dog is old and can't hold it anymore for that amount of hours. So there's many motivations, underlying motivations to displace those behaviors. And the main uh, goal to get started and to, and to learn if your dog's, what does your dog suffer from and how to help is digging in and evaluating so you are able to figure which motivation is in your particular. Yeah. I went through this stage period uh, a couple of years ago where I was just actually just redoing my website a bit. and. I didn't want to put separation anxiety on my website because it was, it's not like you said, it's not always the case. It's not that necessarily. It could be, but it's not necessarily. So I started putting separation uh, issues and my algorithm just fell right off the cliff. So I had to put it back on. And (laughs) 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 it's funny because like you said, like after the pandemic, like it was like almost like a, Everybody was so scared that their dog was going to develop separation anxiety because everybody was going to be home. Uh, dogs weren't going to develop coping skills. Uh, they weren't going to get. U- they weren't going to be used to people being out the house. All of these different things kicking in, and everybody's at the peak of their stress levels anyway. Um, <laughs> so, um, in some cases, it was separation anxiety. Definitely, I don't want to. I- say that you know it doesn't exist of course it exists otherwise i wouldn't have a job but uh <laughs> it would be great if i didn't have a job actually because you know all dogs would be okay but the, the bottom line is that yeah it's not always that so you have to figure it out and in those cases um you would see the difference i remember getting out of the pandemic it was just a matter of assessing and sometimes you would get surprises and the dogs were fine it was just that they weren't used to this new setup the same as us right like you have to adjust to big changes in our setup and our environment, our routine. And it just takes a little bit of time, but they're like key things to observe, to tell the difference between one and the other. And that's what what might be something that you, okay, let me, I'm going to try and stagger this so that it actually comes out in some sort of reasonable order. But um, I guess what are the couple of other motivations other than separation anxiety that we might see? Um, one, a big one, um, and I don't know how things are there. So you tell me, um, mm-hmm. in terms of the reality and the, and the usual, um, setup for dogs when alone, but, um, here in the U S it's very common to create dogs when they're left alone. Yeah. It's pretty common. Which is not very common, let's say in Chile, or it wasn't when I was living there. I think things have changed a little bit. Um, is it similar there? Uh, yeah, it is. It's pretty common. It's not, it, yeah, it's, it's more common here than probably, you know, in 
Latin America. Yeah. Okay. So what happens is that there is, when I moved here, I started seeing all of these cases that weren't actually separation anxiety, but they were confinement issues. And confinement issues basically is that instead of being alone, what's aversive to the dog, because separation anxiety in itself, just so you guys know, is basically for that particular dog, being left alone is an aversive stimulus. The dog shows an irrational fear to that situation. And no matter the repetitions of that situation, the dog isn't able to figure out that his life isn't being threatened. So instead of getting better over time, like, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't die last time, so this is fine. I'm going to just be better and more relaxed the next time. It gets worse over time, and they can't rationally understand that it's not a dangerous thing. Um, and so that's in separation anxiety. When a dog suffers from confinement issues, it's basically the same, but with confinement. Confinement is what's aversive. And there's a high correlation between those two. So there are many dogs who suffer from separation anxiety and confinement issues, which makes a lot of sense. Because if you think about being alone, being your aversive, right? And then you're not only left alone, but also handcuffed and alone. <laughs> it's probably going to elicit worse and more intense behaviors, right? Because now you don't have absolute control over anything at all. Um, so there's, there is a high correlation, but they can also happen separately. And you can see dogs who only suffer from confinement issues. And when you assess them free in the house, you don't see any issues whatsoever. And that is a big what one. Just what do you mean by that? Sorry, I'm just, well, when yeah. you say assess them free, what is? Oh, assess the assessment is basically what we do to evaluate which which is the motivation, the underlying motivation for this separation-related behaviors to be displayed. And um, in this case, what we usually do is that we set up um, some sort of camera or a computer or any device that allows us to see the dog either recorded or live mm. through our phone, or if it's a recording, just when we come back. And we set it up in a strategical way so we can observe the dog moving around the house and likely in the place where he's going to be the most if he is panicking. And we leave, and not we, but the person lives with the dog, leaves the house, leaves the property in the area. So the dog perceives like the person is actually gone. And that way we can observe the dog's body language and also a few other things that separation anxiety dogs have in common. So we can see if the trend shows us that the dog is actually panicking or if the body language and the other little keys that we can talk later about um, show us that it's something else, that the motivation is something else. For example, if your dog is sleeping the whole time and suddenly starts barking at the window and then comes back to sleep, your neighbor might say that your dog barked all day, but that barking was actually because something was happening outside yeah. and not because your dog was in panic because he was alone. Yeah, so, like a sensitivity to the environment, like noise exactly. or visual, rather than the stress of being left alone. Exactly. Or if your dog is playing around with a pillow and like destroying it and just having fun, you know. Uh, but the body language suggests that your dog is like bouncing around and just being all, you know, like curvy and, and soft. <laughs> you, will, you will probably be able to tell that your dog is having a lot of fun because there's no one to tell him he shouldn't supposed to do that, right? <laughs> um, and it's not because he's panicking. So those are the kind of things in, in, a, in broad terms that you can see while you're assessing. And one of those things is the confinement that we were talking about before. So if you assess, meaning you watch them on, uh, online while they're alone, in a crate, 
and your dog panics and your dog tries to escape and maybe harms himself trying to escape or drools or moves the crate from one place to another, which is very common, or eats everything that he can grab from in, in, the, in between the bars. And then another day you run an assessment, but your dog is free in the house and you see that your dog paces around a little bit and then just goes to sleep. Then it, there's your answer. So the problem wasn't being alone. The problem was actually being created. And, it does, and it's not black or white. So it can be that a dog who is left free in the house for the first time, it's a little bit uncertain because doesn't know what to expect and what's happening. But you should see that over time through repetitions of this assessment, it gets better and better and better and better. Uh, if it doesn't, and if it's less intense than in the crate, but it still, it still looks like a panic, you know, episode, then you probably have both. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but that's one of the typical ones. And it's mostly because of the prevalence of using a crate more, you know, that's just, if you weren't using crates, you wouldn't see it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's a big one. And the second big one that I see a lot that is not separation anxiety is um, adaptation to being left alone. And that was one of the big ones uh, after the pandemic. Dogs who had been never, never had never been alone, um, you know, either because, you know, like in Australia, I, I don't, you guys were quarantined, right? Like you couldn't get out of your houses, right? Oh, big time, yeah. Um, so in those cases, like you didn't get to practice at all. Like you couldn't even get out. So there's no practice. There's, there's never the opportunity for the dog to be exposed to that. And yeah, you could see some signs of distress the first times that they were exposed to the situation. But again, the trend would show you that over time, those signs would start decreasing and the dog would adapt better. Whether if it was separation anxiety, those signs would either remain exactly the same or get more and more intense over time. Yeah. One of the, it's one of the things that I'm picking up there is it's important not to just take a snapshot and to actually look at how is the dog's behavior kind of evolving under these circumstances is it showing that yeah look it was pretty bad but it's actually becoming more comfortable or are we now going the wrong direction and got yet yeah, starting to see the reaction to this like the learning of this dog is happening in front of our eyes but we can see that it is learning to feel safe and it is learning to come to terms with it or we're seeing this dog learning going oh crap this is getting worse Exactly. That's a very good way to uh, to say it. And there's a lot to unpack there. Um, there are a couple of things. So uh, one, definitely, um, you like one that reminded me when you were when you were um, saying that was that um, when I was studying to to become a specialist, I remember my teacher, my mentor, Melina, to like show us a picture of a dog sitting on a couch who was like fully destroyed. Like everything was a mess, like garbage everywhere. And she would say, what is this? Panic or fun? And we don't know, right? Like, how do we know? Because that's just, just a picture. Like you don't know how the dog is moving. You don't know the, the body language. You don't know anything. You don't know the circumstances, right? Um, it's the same as when your neighbor tells you that your dog was barking all day. It's, it's a good piece of information. Don't get me wrong. Of course, you should consider it. But it's not the ultimate truth because you are not seeing what's happening. So that's the first aspect 
of, of this starting of this. point. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to really, uh, the assessment has to be in motion. You have to observe your dog moving so you can understand what's happening. Within one assessment, you could potentially see everything that you need to know. And that takes me to the second part of things, whereas there are a few things that dogs with separation anxiety have in common. And I know I mentioned before that all the signs happen in so many setups, right? That you don't know, like, how, how would you know if it's separation anxiety? It's hard. It gets, it gets harder, right? However, first thing you will see is that since this situation is aversive to them, they will really try to cope with it as much as they can once it's presented to them. So once the person leaves and they are, they are left alone. But very quickly, they're going to reach a point where they can't. And the situation becomes aversive to them. That point we call the threshold. And that's when they show the first overt sign of distress. So let's say barking, whining, as panting, drooling, eliminating. From then on, they won't be able to settle back down until the situation is removed. In other words, until someone is back and they're not alone anymore. Instead, what you will see is that the signs will intensify over time throughout the absence or they will be cyclical. They will, they will continue happening no matter the amount of hours that the person is gone. If, if it's eight hours, the dog will react, settle, react, settle, react, settle, never, never actually setting, settling back down fully. Yeah. That the threshold, that point usually happens within the first 30 minutes. So it's pretty, and it's usually, if you haven't worked with your dog, it's usually within seconds or a couple of minutes. It's pretty quick. And the third thing that they have in common is that the body language suggests that they're having a heart. So if it's, for example, urinating, instead of seeing that they, you know, got up, they, they needed to go to the restroom and they went and then they came back to sleep, you will see that they're pacing around and urinating and not in a favorite spot, but like rather randomly because they're just pacing and panicking while panting. So you will see that the dog is actually having a hard time. Those things can help you decide in one assessment that the dog suffers or not from separation anxiety. However, <laughs> there's the last, last key information, and it's what you were mentioning. Even an assessment, it's still a capture of moment and time under those circumstances, which can be very, very specific. You know, the dog woke up that day feeling a certain way. You took him out. It was a certain time of the day. It was raining. There were thunderstorms outside. It can be anything. And so although it's a very good representation of what's happening, there's still a margin of error. And if you're not sure, which is totally fine, the, the more I do this, the more unsure I am. <laughs> and the more <laughs> I ask for more information before making my decision. And so it's totally fine not to be, to be fully sure. But then if you start doing more trials and you give yourself like a week or two, as long as it's safe, you know, and you don't see that things are really not working. If they're really not working, there's no point of doing this. But if you are uncertain, do more trials for a week or so and start observing the trend. Because the trend is your best friend. And it's going to tell you, as you were beautifully uh, saying it, that things are getting better or things are getting worse. And that will be your answer. Yeah, I, I love that. The trend is your best friend. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. It's so true, though. And we all have bad days, right? So, yeah, yeah you know? absolutely. Because yeah, there's going to be those outlier days that just completely out of character. You know, like if I have if I have a day where I'm particularly pissy and angry, 
um, I would hate somebody to brand me as an angry person based on that one day of my <laughs> life or one interaction. Um, yeah, like the worst version of yourself, right? And yeah. it's like, I'm like that, I'm a nice guy. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not that bad. <laughs> but, but yeah, so like, yeah, the, that, that gathering of information is just so, so important. And it, like you said, I, I really, it really kind of hits home for me at that point where, where it can be quite confronting. You know, like for for anybody involved, because they're going to be. I feel like something like this, learning anything new, that it can be quite scary in the first place, especially when the information isn't actually predetermined. Quite unnerving. It's um for the dog, you mean? Well, for the human as well, but for the, for the dog. Well, for both. I mean, for the people going through it, it's yeah. Um, I can feel like tackling this. Like I think there's like so much. For example, for for the dog, and that's kind of like uh, grabbing myself from the adaptation that we were talking as a one potential cause. I always like to uh, tell my clients: think about your dog was adopted into your house, and he doesn't know. Like it might be a beautiful cell, but it's still a prison. Like you, your dog doesn't know that he's safe. That you're not like a serial killer. That you're not a psychopath. That Everything is going to be fine, that all is safe, all is good, that you're going to love them forever. Like, you can say all of those things, but they don't have to believe you. You know, they don't believe your actions over time as they adapt to be there with you. But they don't have to know, no matter how much you explain it to them. So, of course, it's unnerving and it's stressful. And we should grant them that, right? Like, give them the time to heal and to adapt and to feel okay with it before we start you know making assumptions or, or getting into conclusion and to like final decisions about what's happening unless it's pretty clear of course sometimes it's pretty clear yeah and for the humans it's very hard as well it's very overwhelming there's so much information out there that is just sometimes so confusing they have learned everything and you know dr google <laughs> has taught them so much and they, there's just so much misleading information that they just when they get to you they just they just don't don't have it in them anymore they're they're completely crushed and and emotionally exhausted so it's definitely hard yeah they've normally somebody that's calling for help has normally already been trying and yeah i know firsthand that when i arrived there you know i could come full of all the bells and whistles and be like right we're gonna try this but in their minds, they're like, yeah, I've been trying, man. I'm tired <laughs> and uh, I'm struggling with this. And separation issues as well often come with that um, added pressure of things like, oh, I might get kicked out of my, the fear of getting kicked out of the building or neighbors' complaints. And of course, the guilt for their own dog. And feeling guilty about like also not wanting this, which is, and, 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 you know, if you guys are, are listening, for the ones of you who are listening, like, feel, please don't feel it's hard to, it's easy to say hard to do, but don't feel guilty about feeling guilty. Like, yeah. don't feel guilty about feeling like you don't want your dog anymore, like that it's it's a burden for you, because it's okay to feel like that. It is, it is a hard situation. It's very hard and consuming, and and you can't leave your dog alone. You can't have a life anymore. You can't have fun you can't like do anything it's 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 very 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 tough um so it's okay to feel the way you feel 
just know that there is a way out and it's doable and it can be done. And it's actually, it can be done in a very simple way. It takes time as everything, discipline and time, but it can be done in a way that is squeezed into your day and you can find outlets to continue living your life, even if it's not normal, absolutely normal, and the best way to recharge you. And even if it takes long, if it's an older dog, yeah, definitely there's more to think about. But if it's a young dog, even if it takes a year, even if it takes a long time, in the big scheme of things, then you will have a dog with many years ahead for you to enjoy and both of you to enjoy life in a healthy way. So yeah, it, it sounds like a lot, but it's like preparing for a marathon or for yeah. something like that. It's, it's not going to happen in a week. It will take years or months or, you know, if you want to build like, you know, bodybuilder or whatever it is, it's not going to happen in, you know, one, in one night, but it, it will happen eventually if you continue doing it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's so important for people to know, you know, because it's one of the issues that we work with that is more debilitating to people's lives and quite trapping and people can feel very trapped. But knowing that there is an option and there are ways to actually free yourself, uh, that knowing that alone, hopefully that just makes somebody that listens to this just feel a little bit better. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's really super important. Um, and you know, while, while we're on this, you know, and I genuinely, I'm asking this again out of my own curiosity, but what are a couple of things that you might advise people to do, like in preparing their dog, uh, to build that, uh, resilience to being left alone? So although we can't really prevent this because we don't really know the cost, so we don't know the cost. <laughs> That's the first, the most important uh, thing to mention. We think that there is a genetic predisposition and that changes um, environmental factors such as traumatizing events, things like that, could potentially trigger the onset of it. Like, you know, favor these genes and, 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 and uh, let them express themselves into what we see as separation anxiety. But since we don't know exactly the cause, when you don't know the cause of something, you can't really prevent it. However, so there's no guarantees. That's the first and most important part to mention. But still, you can do a lot of things to try to set up the environment for success in a way. Uh, although it's not going to guarantee that it will never happen. If it had to happen, it will maybe make it less likely. Mm -hmm. And a couple of those things that I like to do is, um, first of all, when you adopt a dog, um, help your dog to adapt so give him time to adapt and that's kind of in the lines we were talking about before and i think that's another thing it, it kind of links to what we were talking about the human aspect we have so many expectations when we adopt a dog and they can be they can vary you know they can be different expectations whether we wanted a dog for doing sports or to having a dog who you know was going to be our kid or it doesn't matter the expectation and we because we're humans, we, we fill our heads with all of these expectations and dreams, and then we get there. And even if you, we do our homework, things don't work exactly as you, we thought that they were going to. And it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And we feel bad, and we don't want the dog anymore, and we feel all sorts of feelings. <laughs> so my first recommendation would be be gentle with your expectations, because dogs are beings the same as us, and they need time to heal. 
And when a dog is adopted, whether it's actually bought from a breeder or whether the dog is adopted from another situation, it's still a transition, right? It doesn't matter that part of thing. He doesn't care about that part. <laughs> it's a transition and it's a new household and you need to give them support. So putting them somewhere else until they stop crying because they're crying and they need to learn right away. All of those things we have learned, even in humans, we have learned that they're not really necessarily needed or good yeah. <laughs> actually more, right? We need to provide support and, 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 and guidance and comfort throughout that stage. So that would be my first one. And um, that could take a couple of weeks for the dog to, without you actually leaving your dog alone. So ideally in a beautiful ideal setup, I would try to actually get vacation when I'm going to get a dog. Like I'm going to, I would try to have some time off so I can devote to my dog and it can be a nice transition. And, uh, or if you have, you know, more members in the hospital and you can take turns so your dog is not alone, that's an option as well. And then once you have, you feel like your dog is more comfortable and knows his house, that he, this is my home, you, uh, I would recommend to start doing gradual absences. So don't start with, okay, I took vacation and now I have to leave for eight hours. I would like start slowly one hour and the best, best friend of us right now, I guess, <laughs> with that artificial intelligence and everything <laughs> coming up <laughs> is technology. So you can use that in your favor and having a camera set up, there are so many cheap brands of cameras, surveillance cameras. And if you don't have a camera or you want to invest in one, Zoom. Everybody yeah. knows how to use Zoom, right? It's a Zoom meeting. It's the world's easiest setup for a camera. You put computer there and you bring your phone and you mute yourself so your dog doesn't hear you while you're out. <laughs> and then you observe what, what your dog does, you know, and then you get a little bit of data tracking and, and you start repeating those absences and get more duration if it's working okay. But you do it as a transition. So that would be my first, first, first advice. Um, on the other hand, more in general, like not necessarily connected to the absence in itself, is that I would make sure to first provide the dog with an environment that is highly predictable. Um, so give them a sense of, you know, they know what to expect in life. And we, we humans are the same. Like I always give analogies about humans because I think we, we have so many similarities in that sense. We all need predictability to thrive, right? We need to know what to expect of life, of our day, of different things. Otherwise, we feel lost. Dogs too. So if you're building a foundation for your dog to feel safe, the best you can do is actually provide some predictability. And once you have built that foundation, then my next advice would be to start adding flexibility to that equation because you want your dog to be flexible ultimately, so if there's any changes in their life along the way that are traumatizing or big, they have the ability to adjust without feeling them as traumatizing events. Because again, coming back to if you were paying attention, <laughs> you guys were paying attention, <laughs> we think that those traumatizing events are the ones who trigger the onset of this disorder. So if your dog doesn't find anything traumatizing because he's highly adaptable, it's less likely that something's going to trigger it. Yeah. So yeah. that's the game you want to play. Like you want to do the predictability part and then you want to start adding flexibility in a safe fashion that is comfortable, a little bit uncomfortable, but in a way that allows your dog to get stronger and thrive and ultimately, you know, be, just, you know, yeah, environment. Super resilient. Like yeah, more. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
the more resilient our dogs are to stress and the less stress Im- is impacting their life, then that flexibility, that those coping skills through changes uh, inevitably become stronger and better. And that's why, you know, addressing, I like looking at dog behavior quite holistically. And, you know, if there are other areas where that dog is carrying stress or having huge stressful events in their life, um, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, like that dog may well be, uh, that, that stress outside the house, for example, may well be impacting their separation uh, related behaviors because it's like, you know, I can't always separate my stress at work from my stress at home because it just doesn't work like that. Compartmentalizing is a great idea and we could try to try to do it consciously, but it doesn't mean it's actually all that possible all the time. And our dogs aren't even trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mentioned so many things there that I, you know, it, it got me thinking of different things <laughs> that I wanted to share too. But yeah, you were so right. We are soup, right? We're not like a drawer full of compartments, like a, a, a desk, I mean, or a cabinet full of drawers that we can put different things in different compartments and just separate them, right? Mm. It's a it's pool, it's soup. Yeah. Everything. It's not my desk right now. It's <laughs> like outside from what you can't see and from definitely what the viewers can't see. You know, it's a bit of a mess. It's, just, <laughs> it's soup. <laughs> it looks perfect in your background, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, right? And there's so many cases I have seen where either they didn't have separation anxiety and, for example, they had health issues instead, which were causing the signs that we were seeing. Or in some other cases, they did have separation anxiety, but the health issues what was making it worse. And without addressing those first, no matter how much training we did, we were never going to get to the to the final result. Yeah. And so, and that that that's why I, I was thinking about that while you were talking is that medical issues are so underrated. And it's something that we jump pretty quickly into training. Like my dog is misbehaving. My dog is doing this. So it is a behavior issue. And for for you guys who are listening, it's just so important for you to tackle this as Ian was mentioning holistically. And first, first stop is at the vet. Check that your dog is healthy. And if you're not sure, get like ask request for a deeper exam for blood work for examination so there is not only the annual where your dog was found okay because there could be underlying situations that you can't just see in a quick you know annual like exam so it is it is important to really pay attention to those things when behaviors happen acutely like from one day to another there is a high likelihood that that's not behavioral and it's instead something medical. Without solving that or addressing that, you're not going to get anywhere, no matter how much of the other part you do. Um, so that's that's a must. I work as we work in teamwork. I work also with. I reach out to the vet, and we we tackle this together. So it's it's from every end, like it's covered basically. Yeah, and it goes back to that what you said earlier. That team, you know, having having a support network around them that is good at what they do it can be so so important i know that that's sometimes a luxury but 
if if we can, if it's accessible, then yeah, make the and most finding, of it. And finding ways around it, right? Like it doesn't have to be perfect, but but as as long as you cover the health part and the behavior part, you you get to at least understand what's happening and how you can help us. Um, but it it is definitely uh, a, a huge one, like the, the yeah. medical. I think and in every aspect of dog training, not just not just uh, separation, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the, the, aggression, you know, and 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 like sometimes fighting due to you know other reasons that you weren't expecting. Things like that can definitely. Yeah. It just I know what I'm like if I'm in pain or if I'm uncomfortable. My if I'm itchy or if you know I'm tired or you know so many different things like to look at health first before trying to change the, the training plan. And there are correlations as well. So they have been found that, for example, there is um, some um, back pains or back issues are somewhat connected to noise sensitivity, for example, which makes sense, right? If you're in pain, there is more likely that perhaps you're going to, you know, be more irritated by noise yeah. <laughs> uh, or other things. And that's where also having a data tracking um, sheet or setup or anything you want to have, like a log, a diary, it's just so important. It's going to make, it's, it's going to, you know, it's a game changer because we have humans, this, um, <laughs> we are so good at remembering things we want to remember and in the way that we want to remember them, right? Uh, and it's, I think, a survival skill, right? So yeah. it, it really, it's not very objective. <laughs> and, once, and when things change in a gradual way as well, we tend to forget how far we have come. So having all the information there, it just, it, it's kind of like a mind, like an eye opener because you can start seeing, oh yeah, my dog was more like this, just this day when, I don't know, he wasn't feeling good. Like we have found, for example, correlations. This has happened to me twice already, where changes of the barometric pressure were causing, and both were uh, older dogs. You mean like thunderstorms or like, uh, like literally environmental pressure? Yeah, like, the, you know, like getting ready to rain. And yep. here, there is, it's very humid in the summer here where I live. And so um, there's a lot of thunderstorms in the spring. It's yep. very humid. The barometric pre pressure really changes. And those changes were causing the session of that day to go very wrong and the dogs being very irritated and uncomfortable and just, and we didn't know why. Like it took, imagine to get to the point where we found out that it was that. Yep. <laughs> uh, we had to like rule out everything else in their environment. And the way that we were able to do that was because we were keeping track of everything. Yep. And it resulted in that what happens is the changes in barometric pressure, they, they um, uh, change the tension of your tissues. So in older dogs where uh, with uh, arthritis or with different like joint issues, it can be quite painful and uncomfortable. Kind of like what the old people used to tell us, like, you know, my bones hurt because it's going to rain. That's yeah. what well, it, it's a, that's funny because uh, I was doing something, and this is completely anecdotal, but I've got a boy, old boy dog that really struggles with thunderstorms. Um, not not separation, but this year 
because uh, we in Sydney we get the same. We get these huge pressures come in every year, and the thunder and lightning is awesome to watch. But yeah, brings around a completely different weather system. Uh, and this year, we bought a dehumidifier. And honestly, I know it's anecdotal, but hell, it made a hell of a difference to Django's quality of life just by taking, just keeping the atmosphere in system. Uh, that's a great idea. Wow. I'm going to copy that. Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. It, it that's a great idea. I want to talk about it. That's a great idea. I mean, I would love to say that I bought the humidifier for him. I didn't. <laughs> uh, but the evidence then started to stack up that this was his, his best year yeah. uh, since I've known him with thunderstorms. And the thunderstorms were pretty bad this year. Um, wow, that's pretty interesting. And I know it's anecdotal and we shouldn't just, you know, mm. for people out there, don't think, okay, I'm just going to go and check the barometric pressure because that's the problem for my dog having separation anxiety or, you know, or, or buying yeah. before contacting a trainer. But but there are important things to, to keep in mind and that yeah. shows that we're always learning, right? Um, and that we are learning from our cases and anecdotes become studies and become evidence at some point, right? That's how it starts. Yeah. <laughs> so gathering all of this information, it's very helpful to understand more what's going on and how we can help. That's, yeah. I think, very valid. Awesome. I don't feel like such a moron for saying it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Maura, I'm I'm gonna... I my client now and tell him to go to buy a new one. It's like my go-to now. It's you'll see, you'll see some guy on Instagram now just selling it as the fix-all for all dog training problems because that's apparently what that's what Instagram does with TikTok. <laughs> but I honestly gonna copy that one because I think it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, um, one thing I wanted to mention before I forget, I think it's it's just important. It's a nice analogy that I copied from someone else. It's not mine. Um, but two analogies um, that I think might help people understand a little bit more about this. So what we were talking about, the how to set up a dog, um, like set a dog up for success when they're coming into the house um, and, and, and playing with this predictability and flexibility is um, one of my coaches, like workout coaches, um, his, his quote, what he loves to say is, play with the edges of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I just love that sentence. And when I used it for the first time with a client, she said, you know what? You should say that to all your clients because now I understand much better what you mean with pushing. And, and it's basically, you don't want to just add and add more complexity and, 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 and make it hard for and, and not set the dog up for success. So you want them to have a foundation and feel comfortable. Like if you were starting to work out, you don't want to burn yourself because you're never going to keep doing it. Like it's painful and it's uncomfortable and it's not fun. But when, once you have that foundation, you will be able to take a little bit more. And that's when you start playing with stress because ultimately stress is good at a lower level, right? So we can get stronger. And it's exactly the same that you want to do for in both cases with a dog without separation anxiety, but also when you are working on separation anxiety. So when you're working on separation anxiety, the only difference between that dog and the others is that they don't know how to use their coping mechanisms to settle on their own. 
and you want to teach them how to do that. But in order to do so, you have to first give them a foundation and comfort and trust. And once that's settled, then you slowly start pushing. And over time, you might be able to make them more and more uncomfortable because you know that they can do it. It's like us, you know, I know you am also like to work out. So, you know, I love to suffer (laughs) when I work out because I already like it so much that it's not going to make me turn my back to it. I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to look for more, but only because when I started, I didn't do that. (laughs) Otherwise I wouldn't succeed. Right. Oh, absolutely. And even just on that working out analogy, I I also had a really good um, mentor. Um, He said something along the lines of like, don't, you know, so that you don't break yourself, train so that you can train tomorrow. You know, like so train and push, but don't push so hard that you break. Right. And but in on that, you know, when I was younger, my one of the things that I've struggled with now that you know I'm nearing 40, um, is when I was younger, I had such a strong baseline of fitness that it didn't actually matter what I did. I was so resilient. I would bounce back and be able to go again tomorrow. Whereas these days, after having, I took like a four or five year uh, lazy break. And for whatever reasons, uh, it was great and it was bad, but you know, it happened. <laughs> and nowadays, I got, so I've been on this about a year, year and a half long journey now of trying to get back into exercise. And the only time it's gone wrong is when I've, pushed too hard, you know, trying to, I've remembered, oh, I used to be able to do this. You know, I used to be able to run four minute Ks. I'm definitely going to be able to run that now. And so I'll go bolt around and I would probably get close to that time. And I'd be like, yes, I can do it again. But then I couldn't run for three weeks. And, <laughs> and uh, so I would break myself and I've had to go through that learning journey all over again, but consciously. Because when I was younger, it was quite a natural progression. I never really had to think about it. Whereas consciously now, I have to actively choose how much exercise to do and how much, like, like how much stress to put on myself so that I don't break. And I think there is a bit of a myth out there around how to build resilience. People think it has to be through this baptism of fire, where you know you really, really like you know scorch hard and that often is not not the case. <laughs> it's definitely not. And by the way, aging is pretty humbling, right? <laughs> Isn't it just? <laughs> and, and, and if you know, for, for you guys who are out there, like uh, if if you are in the process of aging, like well, we are all, all are, right? We're <laughs> close to forty. I'm already there. Um, you you can start feeling changes, you know, and and and. You know, before it's just it's just natural that you can do everything you want, right? And nothing happens. It's like just you know you can you can not take care of yourself at all, and it's still gonna work. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work anymore. And I think that that's a nice way, even if even if you are not into you know fitness, uh, but if you are struggling with adult with separation anxiety, think about the things you used to be able to do and the things that you are not anymore. And and how to me what. Working out has helped me understand is that with aging and continue doing this, you you have to learn to listen to your body better. 
and you have to know when to stop <laughs> as you <laughs> you learn in the very, hard way <laughs> yeah. unfortunately exactly um and and you have to learn how to push and hold back and how to just get to that sweet spot to build resilience without breaking yourself right that's like it's a great the great great quote the one you just mentioned and i think that that gives us so much that we can use when thinking about dog training separation anxiety training because it's just ultimately a form of learning you can use that if you're not into fitness you can use that with learning a new language learning um a new playing a new uh, another like uh, instrument or moving and adjusting to a new job a new environment anything yeah learning any new skill if they just put you there and make you suffer you're gonna you're gonna want out like, and that's it. And it's going to be a version. You're never going to want to try it again. But if you ease yourself into it, it's just, it's going to work and you can get there um, differently than you. I didn't start. I did. I wasn't into fitness or working out or anything. I was the kid who never dared to do any sort of exercise because she, I was scared to be bullied. Mm. So um, not that I was bullied um, Fortunately, but my friends knew that I wasn't into working out. So every time I would start doing something, they were all looking at me yeah, like to see how I was going to fall or something. So I never did. And I never did work out in my life. I never needed because I was young. And then I started pretty late and it took a while. It took a while. So if you think about this as an analogy for separation anxiety training, for example, you can all, everybody can do it. And, and it can look hard and it can look like it's too late and it can look like you really need to take one step at a time, but you will get there. You just need to keep trying. A really important thing about like to relate separation anxiety or any sort of anything through this is it doesn't matter uh, where you're at, where the individual is at on their journey, but you just have to respect where the individual is at on that journey. And if you meet them there and support them there, then they will be able to improve in that area. But it is about respecting that individual. Exactly. That's, I mean, you said it all. That's, I think that is the most important aspect. And, and I think, and it's, it's nice to see that as a, as a, not community, it's bigger than that. As, as, as a species, humans, we are, getting closer to understanding more and more that about the animals who we live with. Because I think until maybe 10 years ago or five years ago, it was about what we wanted when we wanted. And they were sort of these robots that had to please us. And we have become more aware, both trainers and guardians alike, that they have needs and they're individuals. And we can't really force them into doing things that they might not want to do. And we can't speed up processes that are emotional processes that they, they, I, I have a colleague who says it takes as long as it takes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the answer, right? And if you go to a therapist and ask them to help you in some sort of way, you can't just tell them, oh, but I need you to be done in a month because yeah. I want to be okay in a month. They will, they will tell you like, That's not possible, right? It takes as long as it takes and it goes as fast as you can go. Um, and I think respecting that is just so important for expectations' sake, and also to set everything, everybody up for success. Ultimately, I think it. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. 
it's uh, so, so important to have an understanding to be able to set expectations. We can't just say to people, have realistic expectations. That comes with understanding the realities of the issues that, uh, you know, your dog is going through, you're going through in regards to your dog. You know, it's having that empathy to put yourself in the dog's shoes and go, oh, yeah, you're struggling here. And if I was in a similar position, I would hate to be given a deadline. And they're not doing it to bother you. No, no. It was said before, they're not doing it because they want to take revenge, because they are mad at you. They're having a hard time. Yeah, they're not trying to give you a hard time. They're having a hard time. Having a hard time. And when we understand that, it just everything shifts because we want to protect them. Because, of course, we want the best for them. Like, you know, it's we, we love them. But we have a hard time understanding that sometimes our egos get in the way with that, right? So, yeah, understanding that they need our help, um, I think it's, it's the best one. And, and as you mentioned, working individual by individual, because everybody is different. Um, there's as many options as dogs are in the world, right? And so you have to really work with what you've got there in that case with that dog and set expectations based on that. Uh, sometimes you have to be flexible and understand that there's certain things that are going to be in a certain way. And you just have to work your way around that and, and find the best that can happen in that setup and come to peace with that as well, because otherwise it just, it's not healthy for anybody and it's just not realistic. We're going to, I'm going to bring it back. I want to end on a good note. I want to be reminded yes. that <laughs> it is achievable. And I really want, I really want you to repeat that little saying that your, uh, personal fitness coach uh said because i love that and i'm going to take that that was my key like that's what was it oh it was play with the edges of discomfort so a little bit at a time a little bit until it's a little bit uncomfortable but not quite that much that you don't want to do it again and then back off a little bit more a little bit more a little bit less until it doesn't feel uncomfortable anymore yeah play with the edges of discomfort that's good. It's, I love it. And it's actually, um, it's, it's a British guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we did something right. <laughs> Not many things, but. <laughs> you did, you did. He, he's great. He's great. Uh, and um, yes, definitely to end on a good note, um, it's doable. And for you guys who are there, if you're struggling with this, it might take long. That's the true of it. It might take a while, um, but don't, and I know it's hard not to feel discouraged about that. Please don't. And I'm going to give you an example to end about one case I'm working with. Um, and it's, uh, and, and don't feel afraid of the number I'm going to give you. And don't feel, and don't think that your dog is going to take that amount of time. Because again, it's, yeah. I have as different durations of how long this takes, depending on each dog I've worked with. So every dog is different. But um, with this dog, we, we have been working together for three years and there was so much we had to tackle to finally get to a point where we were smoothly progressing there were health issues there were medications that were that were causing side effects that we didn't know about there were so many things in the environment the way that he learned like really honoring and, and that that actually um allowed me to create like a slight 
different protocol than the one I usually work with. And that has helped me so much because now I have replicated that those modifications in my protocol for dogs who I think are like him uh, and learn like him. And that has been a game changer for so many other dogs that I were, was able to help earlier or change their protocol earlier. But we had to honor his way of learning, which was very different than not, I don't want to say very different than the usual dog because every dog again is different, but it was slightly the, the way that he would benefit from things was a little bit different. Uh, and we had to do all of that. So it took quite a while. And for the first, I would say year, year and a half, we were at 10 minutes max. And one day I asked um, my client or she asked me like, you know, do you, do you think, do you still think we can make it? And, and she said, I know you mentioned that it can take years, but like, do you think it's going to take, I don't know, nine years? <laughs> I said, no, it's definitely not going to take nine years. I, I think I'm going to stop before 10 years, <laughs> but I still have ideas and I still have plans, you know? So uh, while I don't run out of plans and ideas, if you want to keep trying, we keep trying. And now we are at tomorrow, we're going to do an assessment where we hope to get to three hours and 30 minutes he's doing great and we did it and the goal for her is five hours and we're this close this close to the finish line and yeah there were tears and there were years of work and it wasn't all pretty but we got there because if you keep going you will get there so just don't be afraid and, and think about one day at a time that's the best way to not freak out about what's expecting you on the other side that's a good lesson for life in general <laughs> yeah. yeah, I should copy that in my own life, right? <laughs> we should. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, shouldn't we all? <laughs> oh, Moira, I um, I'm so grateful for you coming on today. I'm thankful. Uh, just yeah, thank you so much. I've learned so much, and I just love spending time with you. So we're going to be doing this again. Oh, I'll be happy to. And thank you for inviting me. It has been truly an amazing, uh, you know, space. And um, I, I, I always enjoy talking, talking with you and chatting. It, it, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. I learned a lot from you as well. Um, so I'll be happy to, you know, be a guest again if you, if you <laughs> decide to invite me. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week, guys. If you ever want to ask questions, give feedback, or just provide some suggestions regarding the podcast, find me on Ian Shivers Dog Advocate on Instagram. I'll be happy to help. If you're feeling really generous, leave us a review on whatever platform it is that you're listening to this podcast on. And if you want to nerd out more with us, then find our sponsors because they're the ones that make all of this possible. See you next week. This episode has been sponsored by Bono Behaviorist. Bono Behaviorist is a Sydney-based dog training and behavior company. I found it back in 2015. We've got a small but dedicated team of dog trainers and behavior consultants. We've helped over 4,000 people at this point with everything in between, helping people set up their new lives with their puppy or adopted dog, to working with people that have come to us to help them with dog training and behavior concerns. For more information, go to bondibehaviorist.com or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Bondi Behaviorist.